For our sermon text this morning, we're returning to the book of Lamentations, a book who, that, that, that we don't often um, uh, approach or come to, perhaps, in our discipleship as Christians, but a book we've been in periodically over the last few months. Um, just as a quick review for those of you who might be parachuting in for the first time in our study in Lamentations. Um, Lamentations, strictly speaking, is anonymous, doesn't give us who wrote the book, but traditionally it's been ascribed to Jeremiah. There doesn't seem any reason to, to doubt that Jeremiah is the author, and so we'll continue to refer to Jeremiah as the author of the book. The book of Lamentations laments the most devastating event in Israel's history, that is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the beginning of Israel's 70-year exile at the hands of Babylon that happened in 586 BC. Now today, we're going to be working through the second half of Lamentations chapter 3. Last time, two weeks ago, we looked at Lamentations 3, 1 through 39, and in that we covered what's perhaps the most well-known verses in the book of Lamentations. Um, we're going to the second half of Lamentations 3, verses 40 through 66, perhaps not as well-known as the text we looked at two weeks ago, but nevertheless, this is God's inspired, inerrant word, able to equip us in our discipleship. And so with that said, hear now the word of the Lord. Lamentations 3, 40 through 66 can be found starting on page 688 if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. And I will, as always, be reading out of the English Standard Version. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us, devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I've been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pits and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. I called on your name, O Lord. From the depths of the pit you heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. You have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we continue to move um, deeper into the summer months, at least in the Leitner household, we've reached that inevitable point in the year where the last of the Christmas cards that have been plastered on our refrigerator and 
scattered throughout the house since early December, have finally made their way uh, to the trash can. Now, like many of you, and I know since I've been in some of your homes, every December, people we know and love, families who live all over the world, people who we may know have known at different periods in our lives, they send us an updated photo of their family with some kind of general greeting related to Christmas. And every year, there's always an interesting mix of cards that at least my family gets in the mail. Uh, because there are some people or families who send us cards who we regularly see and talk to, even some of you. Thank you for that. Uh, but then there are other families who send us cards who we haven't seen or talked to in years. And when we receive those cards, and even in recent weeks and, and days as we slowly disposed of those cards, I'm reminded on the one hand of some of the good old days with many of those people we knew and loved from previous seasons of our lives, but also more somberly of how distant we've grown from some of those friends who at one time we knew so well. And as the years wear on and we receive updated photos every year from those families, well, the distance, it seems, continues to grow. And some of those memories of the past, times we spent with those families, even begin to fade. Now, of course, I think we can all relate and understand how such a scenario is possible. Nobody's to blame in a situation like that. That's just the way that life works out sometimes. And yet, what do we do when this is how it feels in our relationship with God? You know, as Christians, we pray, and we should pray, that the Lord would sanctify us, that he would continue to conform us to Christ by putting to death through the Spirit the old man and bringing to life the new. And as a church, we talk often about growing as disciples in Christ. That's the aim of all of our ministries. We aim to make disciples at harvest who worship and serve. And I think we all recognize that growing in a deeper relationship with the Lord should be among our chief desires and aims as believers. But what happens if or when we begin to grow cold towards God? Rather than growing in greater fellowship with him, we end up growing distant towards God. Or God becomes like one of our Christmas card friends from long ago in a faraway place who we haven't spoken to in years, who we don't think much about, and whose existence doesn't affect much about our day-to-day -day lives. Well, when we turn to our text, we find that Jeremiah and the people of God are faced with something analogous. In their case, the nation as a whole had neglected for quite some time their spiritual health. They didn't bother to listen nor heed the word of the Lord. They went after other gods. So as a consequence of all of that, the Lord punished his people at the hands of Babylon in 586 BC. If you recall, that's when the nation of Babylon stormed against Israel and Jerusalem, sacked the city of Jerusalem, burned down the temple, and carried the people of God off into exile, away from the land that God had set apart for his people to live in fellowship with him. And so as Jerusalem sits in ashes, we hear Jeremiah in our text cry out from the ashes and lament that because of their sin, God's favor, his presence seems really distant from him and from Israel right now. So how then does one restore that relationship? How do Jeremiah and Israel emerge from their affliction and suffering and find refuge and fellowship even in exile with the Lord? Well, in short, they draw near again 
to the Lord. And that's our big idea. Uh, draw near again to the Lord. In the passage before us, we're going to see essentially three things that Jeremiah does and in the process encourages us to do to draw near again and again to the Lord, especially when we sense perhaps a growing distance from him in our own discipleship. So as we look at our text this morning, three points that we're going to look at. First, seeing our sin in verses 40 through 47. Second, recalling God's salvation in verses 48 through 57. And third, certainty in God's justice, verses 58 through 66. There are sermon worksheets out the back that have that outline in it, and I'll repeat as we go. So first, seeing our sin. Now, we've mentioned throughout our slow walk through Lamentations over the past um, few months or so, that, that while lament is an appropriate response for all of us, insofar as we live in a fallen world filled with sin and sinners, and the Bible gives us language to lament when we're suffering the realities of that world or the sin of other people who inhabit that world with us, that Lamentations as a whole is particularly interested in lamenting our own sin. Remember, Israel is suffering, as Jeremiah writes, the, the upheaval of their national life, the destruction of the temple in, in Jerusalem, and the shame of exile, and all of those events, those tragic events, were the very real consequences they suffered because of their sin. It's their sin that brought this distance between God and his people. And so it's fitting that when our passage opens in verse 40, Jeremiah encourages Israel and by extension us to see our sin, to confess our sin. First, we find this movement, looking at verse 40 here, in the first few verses, where Jeremiah prods us, he prods the people of God to move from a careful introspection outward to confession. He first summons his readers to test and examine their ways, to look outside of them, to look inside themselves rather, and be honest about how their hearts have been inclined to all manner of things that God calls evil. They needed, as do we, to take an internal audit of their hearts, because it's only then that they'll see the problem isn't with God, the problem is with themselves. The problem isn't out there or up there, the problem is in here. And then having called his readers to test and examine their ways, not to convince themselves that the problem is only with those nations, those evil nations that brought destruction upon them, well, Jeremiah then pivots in the vertical direction, and he calls them and us to lift up their hearts and hands to God in heaven, to submit all that's internal, the heart, all that's external, the hands to the Lord, recognizing, as David says in Psalm 51, that it's against him and him alone who they've sinned against and done what's evil in his sight. And then finally, having searched themselves and acknowledged the one they've offended, Jeremiah calls them to confess in repentance, without qualification, without excuse, quote, we have transgressed and we have rebelled. The only way to begin restoring their relationship with the Lord, in short, is through spirit-prompted repentance. Now, it should also be noted that when the prophet asserts here in verse 42, he says, you have not forgiven. It's important to note that that's not to say that even after they confess their sins and repent, that God will be unwilling to forgive their sins, not at all. 
After all, one of the chief confessions we hear several times in the Old Testament is that the Lord is a God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. But at least at this point, when Jeremiah is sketching out a blueprint for how Israel's to return to the Lord, Israel hadn't yet done that. They hadn't yet brought their sin before God. Jeremiah moves them in that direction, of course, but they haven't done it yet. And so as a consequence, God's judgment still remains upon his people. And according to Jeremiah here, Israel's sin and lack of repentance had driven them to such a dire position that God had effectively refused to listen to their prayers. Not as if he refuses to hear their prayers of repentance, should they offer them, but he refuses to hear them as if everything is okay. Verse 44 tells us that God had wrapped himself in a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 59 verses 1 through 2, says something nearly identical where he writes, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now, maybe you've had someone in your own life, someone who you've been in conflict with, approach you as everything is okay, or everything's just fine, when it's really not. Uh, Maybe a spouse, I don't know, I'm just a hypothetical. Uh, Well, if that's ever happened to you, you know that there's something jarring about that, and often we don't want to continue as if everything is fine and okay until that conflict hanging over us like a cloud is finally resolved. We don't want to glaze over those things and just pretend everything's okay when it's not. Well, in the case of Israel, the Lord isn't going to continue with his people as if everything is okay when it's not. He sent Babylon to discipline his people, and as a consequence of Israel's sin, the wages of their sin, the Lord made them like scum and garbage among the peoples. They've reaped tangible consequences because for so long they'd refused to test and examine their ways when it was precisely their ways that were the problem. And so, as Old Testament commentator Paul House writes, quote, The only closeness to God they feel at this moment is closeness to his anger and to his distance from them. You know, if we ever find ourselves in a place like Israel was, if it ever seems for us like our joy in the gospel or our hunger for fellowship with the Lord has waned, sometimes we imagine that that the problem lies everywhere else but our own hearts. And we search everywhere but our own hearts, imagining that all sorts of external changes are going to fix things. We're also really good at searching the hearts of other people, too. Uh, But again, what Jeremiah points out with Israel is it's precisely their hearts that need examined. It's their hearts that need to be searched and addressed. Now, our Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, gets at something very similar, too. In, In the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 11, subsection 5, We read that even though God continues to forgive the sins of those who are through Christ justified, and that no one who's justified can ever fall from that state, it's still possible that, quote, they may by their sins fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. 
And so as you think about your own relationship with the Lord right now, does God seem near or does he seem far off? Are you eager and passionate to spend time with God? Are you finding the gospel robustly ministers to you in all sorts of situations, or are you instead growing cold towards spiritual things? Wherever you're at, all of us need a healthy introspection as it relates to our sin. And in order to do that, we need the word of the Lord to act like a mirror exposing our sin and the spirit of God to open the eyes of our hearts to see our sin for what it is and to call our sin what it is. We need what David prays for in Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24, where he prays, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me to the way everlasting. May that be our prayer as we test and examine our own ways too. And so as a first step in drawing near to the Lord, when the Lord feels so distant, Jeremiah calls the people of God, and by extension us, to look inside us, to see our own sin and to repent of our sin. The next place he leads us after confession is a reminder of the goodness of God and the mercy of God shown to him and Israel in the past in order to provide clarity in the present. Here we're looking at a second point, recalling God's salvation, and we're turning to verses 48 through 57. And when we turn to verse 48, we find that in light of this reflection on his sin, that Jeremiah is absolutely desperate. He thinks about the panic and destruction that had fallen on Jerusalem. Panic and destruction, of course, that Israel brought upon themselves, but panic and destruction, nevertheless, it's so devastating then that he begins to weep. We read several times about his eyes filling with tears. In verse 48, my eyes flow with river of tears. Verse 49, my eyes will flow without ceasing. Then in verse 51, my eyes cause me grief. It's almost as if Jeremiah's eyes are so filled with tears, maybe you can relate with this yourselves, that he can't move forward because he physically can't even see a way forward. He is in himself helpless to navigate the path before him. But he knows at the same time that the Lord can see, which is why he essentially asks here for the Lord to look down from heaven and see. He asks, in effect, for the Lord to remove this cloud of anger in which he's wrapped himself and look down again and have compassion on his people and remember his promises and act again for the benefit of his people. And then something else begins to happen. Well, Jeremiah, we see, he he himself begins to see a little bit, but he doesn't necessarily see a way forward. Instead, we find that he looks back to the past And he remembers how God compassionately worked to save him in the past. If you're looking in your text, you may notice that in verses 52 through about verse 57, it appears that Jeremiah pauses just for a little bit on reflecting directly on the current situation in Israel. Remember, Jerusalem in ruins, the people of God in exile. And without much of a transition at all, he begins reflecting on some hardship that he experienced in the past. He mentions things like being hunted like a bird, being flung alive into the pit, and then nearly drowning in that pit as the pit slowly filled up with water. 
John McKay notes, this was not just a place of imprisonment, this was an execution chamber that Jeremiah reflects upon that he was in. Now, at one point in Jeremiah's ministry, as it's recorded in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 38, we hear of one event that might fit this, where Jeremiah uh, prophesied something unpopular, as he often did, and people didn't like it. As a consequence, he was thrown into a cistern. He was thrown into a pit. And that may be the event that Jeremiah has in view in these verses. But whatever that event in his past that he reflects upon, Jeremiah remembers something. He remembers that there was a time when he was nearly dead, and he called out from the Lord from the depths of this pit, and the Lord drew near, and the Lord said, do not fear, and then the Lord redeemed his life. In short, Jeremiah is remembering something from his past when the Lord stooped down in an otherwise dire situation with no conceivable exit ramp, and the Lord saved him. For the prophet, this is an important memory that confirms in the present when he can't see clearly at all because of his tears that the Lord has seen him, that the Lord has saved him, that the Lord had given him this word that he can cling to even in the most desperate times. Do not fear. And what Jeremiah does here, well, friends, it's also something that we can do as well. How many of us have stories where the Lord has had mercy upon us despite ourselves. How many of us have stories where we were in the depths of woe, but the Lord providentially stepped in just at the right time to lift us out of the proverbial pit. For us, those memories to recall, those are memories to recall not simply because they point us back to our happier time, but because they confirm or underscore what the scriptures already proclaim about God. Remember, the one who disciplines his people is also the one who says earlier in Lamentations 3, 22 through 23, that his steadfast love never ceases, his mercies never come to an end, they're new every day, and who is great in faithfulness. And yet, even if you find those memories somewhat difficult to recall, because honestly, sometimes in our grief, it's even hard to think back on the good things in our lives— Understand that our ultimate hope rests not in some memory we can or can't recall in our past, although those are important, but in how God worked in human history, in the fullness of time, to save us in Christ Jesus. You see, what Jeremiah recalls in our passage is an event where he was brought so low, an event where he thought his enemies would prevail only for the, the last moment, the Lord, to answer his prayers, draw near, comfort him, and scoop him out of the depths. But whereas Jeremiah was delivered from death, the gospel of Jesus Christ reminds us that Jesus was delivered through death. So that whether in life or in death, by faith in his name, we might be delivered too. In other words, while it's important that we reflect in our own stories, that we remember how God has been so good and kind towards us, the chief hope we have in returning to the Lord when things seem quite dull is to remember, first and foremost, the historical fact that Jesus went to the grave, and unlike Jeremiah, the stone closed him in completely, only for three days later for him to rise again. For our justification. What Jeremiah does in these verses is reflect on his history, and in doing so, remembers that God isn't cruel. Yes, God disciplines his people and judges sin, but he's not one to abandon his people in their desperation. 
And it's this memory in the course of Jeremiah's lament that seems to turn him from uncontrolled weeping to a renewed confidence in who God is. Just as the Lord said to him at one time, do not fear. It's those same words he can lay hold of in the present, knowing that should Israel see their sin and repent of it and seek the Lord, that they wouldn't have anything to fear that the Lord might continue to stand against them in judgment. Again, it's this memory and the word of the Lord that accompanied that memory that brought comfort to Jeremiah in the past and that seems to pivot him in his lament. And for us, the question we would do well to ask ourselves, especially when we find ourselves cold or indifferent or distant towards God and his gospel, is how well do I remember? Now, as parents, this is something we're constantly calling our children to do, right? I mean, how many times do our kids, at least if your kids are anything like mine, uh, want to pursue something that's not wise for them to pursue? And if they would only reflect for a moment on how certain things worked out for them in the past, even just five minutes ago, they wouldn't choose that same route again. And so we call them to remember. We say, remember the last time you went down that path? Didn't work out so well. Or on the other hand, when our kids really want something and they act so deprived and helpless without that thing, What happens then? We call them to remember. Remember that we lavished good things on you just yesterday. Remember that you're not really deprived of good things. Remember, we're not cruel parents. Again, as parents, we're constantly calling our children remember. But when it comes to our approach to God, how well do we remember? First, how well do you remember and reflect upon God's grace in your own story? and never had a road to Damascus kind of conversion, but if you know and love Jesus Christ, remember, that wasn't your doing. That was God by His Spirit bringing you from death to life. And moreover, if we would reflect for just a moment back on our lives, all of us would surely think of times when God answered prayer or pulled us out of the pit of despair. Instances when God was so kind and good towards us. And it's those memories that confirm what the scriptures already proclaim God to be. And then second, apart from your own story, friends, remember what God did in human history, or what we would call redemptive history, when in and through Jesus Christ, God saved us from our sin. And so if God seems distant, if God seems far off, remember who God is, remember what God has done, and draw near to him again and again. And once we're able to do that, namely to confess and repent of our sins in the present and then remember God's mercy in the past, well, the next place Jeremiah goes is to the future. And he expresses certainty that in the end, justice will be done. In the end, the Lord does not overlook injustices poured out upon his people. So this leads to our third point, third, certainty in God's justice. And we're here looking about verses 58 through 66. So earlier in our passage, you may remember, we heard this comment that Jeremiah's hope, and and really the hope of all of Israel, was found in the Lord looking down from heaven and seeing. But now that he transitions, Jeremiah transitions out of this brief reflection on the past, and he turns to the future, well, he remembers the Lord has seen. In verse 59, he comments that the Lord saw the wrong that was done to him in the past. It's similar to what happened when Israel cried out to God while they were in slavery in Egypt. 
And in Exodus 2.24, we read, and God heard their groanings, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Just as God heard and saw the groanings of his people in Egypt, God heard and saw the wrongs done to Jeremiah in his past, and it's on that basis that Jeremiah is able to proclaim with confidence that the Lord sees now too. In verse 60, he tells us that the Lord has seen all the vengeance done against him and Israel that Babylon poured out in 586 BC. And so Jeremiah is confident that the Lord sees because the Lord has seen it all, and that the Lord hears because the Lord, he's heard it all. The Lord is a God of seeing and hearing, and no injustice escapes his searching eyes. But it's also interesting that in verses 61 through 63, the one injustice that Jeremiah homes in on and identifies. Notice that he describes twice in these verses the taunts of his assailants. And it's somewhat curious why the prophet is so fixated on the words that were spoken against Jerusalem by nations like Babylon or Edom, which relished in Israel and Jerusalem's destruction. When after all, the far more serious issue wasn't the words or the taunts that were spoken from these nations, but the literal fire and death that rained down on the city. Yet it seems that the prophet here reminds us that any injustice, regardless of how big or how small, is an injustice that the Lord sees and hears. Now, in the case of these words or the taunts that were spoken against Israel, that these were likely the insults and the scorn that was hurled upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, now exiles, in the wake of the city's destruction. These are words that celebrate Israel's defeat and seek to undermine the faith of God's people, as if they said something like, your God can't protect you. He's not able to thwart our ambitions. You know, as a sports fan, I often find that I have two kinds of friends. Uh, when one of my teams loses, there are friends who come alongside me with somberness and solemnness as, as they grieve with one who grieves. But then there are other friends, and you know what they're like, who seem to relish in the defeat of my favorite team, especially if one of their teams was the culprit behind my misfortune. They love to mock or taunt me when I'm down. Nebraska fans, you know this well. Um, but all joking aside, Israel is faced with the most devastating event in their entire history, and their enemies aren't chivalrous in their victory. No, they seek to rub it in. But even these taunts, Jeremiah tells us, are words that the Lord hears and words that the Lord will not overlook. Jeremiah is confident that the Lord has seen and heard all of it, everything from the plots of his enemies in the lead up to the siege, to the destruction of the city itself when one stone wasn't left on top of another, to the blasphemous words that were carelessly hurled about in the aftermath of Jerusalem's destruction. The Lord is a God of justice, and it's with this firm conviction in mind that the Lord will not overlook injustice where he finds it, that Jeremiah then, including our passage, prays. If you look at the final stanza of our passage, that is the final three verses, right around verse 64 through 66, we hear Jeremiah, he's either expressing confidence in what the Lord will do, or he's praying that the Lord will act. The the translations here are somewhat divided in how to understand these final three verses um, in, in the passage. The ESV translates these as prayers of confidence. You will repay, you will give, you will pursue. Whereas other translations, I think NIV is one of them, translates these as prayers of supplication, where Jeremiah is asking the Lord to repay them, to give them back, to pursue them. 
Now, while I think the, the, these are best understood as prayers of supplication in that vein, either way, Jeremiah addresses the Lord in the end here with a kind of certainty that justice is in the hands of the Lord and justice will, at the end of the day, be done. He's confident that even though Israel is bearing at present the curse of the covenant, that in the end, the curse will eventually fall on Israel's enemies. And so at this point, Jeremiah has moved from seeing God as distant and removed from, from the despair of his people to a renewed confidence that God's near his people, that he's ultimately for his people, that he's judging the enemies of his people, and in doing so, we're reminded that the God we serve and worship is no tame or distant God. You know, I can recall numerous times in my life where I've had to prepare uh, to walk into potentially contentious situations. And in preparing for those kind of interactions, I, I've always tried to anticipate what the other person might or might not say, or the arguments that they're going to use. I try to think about my own response, and in a sterile environment, when the other person's not there, you can make a really composed and persuasive case in your own head. Um, when the other person isn't in front of you, there's no pressure at all. You're going to win the argument. Um, but as soon as you're there, and the adrenaline starts pumping, and the situation begins not to go according to plans, because let's face it, they never do, well, there's a certain fear that can grip your heart in those moments. And in the same way, there's a great difference in how we relate to God if all we do is see him as an abstract idea or an intellectual exercise. Somebody just talk about as if he were some concept. But when we begin to draw near again to the Lord through confession, and then we remember how God has been at work, and he's at work now, and we come to a place where we recognize the truth that God sees, that God hears, and that God will judge, it's only then that we move to a place of awe and worship, and that the fear of the Lord also increases in the process. And so if we find ourselves in a place where God seems distant or where the name of the Lord and the promises of God don't provoke the fear or the comfort that they should, well, friends, renew your faith by seeing the Lord in all of his glory, all of his majesty, in and through his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Have your faith renewed again and again by returning daily to the word of the Lord don't neglect the places where the promises of God are promised to bless us. And take confidence, especially if you're lamenting your sin or the sin of the world or injustice in the world, that God is a God of justice who will by no means clear the guilty, but through Christ Jesus has also declared that we who would otherwise be guilty in and through our sin are instead justified in God's sight. Recognize, too, as the Apostle Peter puts it, that, quote, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. Jeremiah, when he writes what he does in the final verses in our passage, is waiting, much like we wait in this world of sin and death for Christ to come again. But even as he waits, and even as we wait, we're called to trust that the God we serve is a God who sees, a God who hears, and a God who will, in the end, right every wrong, just as he's promised to do. And so as we prepare to wrap up and transition to the Lord's Supper and to be renewed again through this sacrament in the promises of the gospel, let me leave us with this. Whether or not God seems distant to you in the present, continue to talk to God. It's interesting that throughout this entire lament, 
even as Jeremiah laments that it seems as if God has wrapped himself in a cloud so that no prayer can pass through, notice that throughout all of that, he's still talking to God. So God may seem distant, but Jeremiah is still active in praying to God. And so as those who have been united to Christ through faith, as those who have all of the benefits of being sons of God through Christ, don't hold God at a distance. In your grief, in your indifference, in your dark night of the soul, and in your joy, talk to God through prayer, confessing your sins, adoring the Lord for who he is and for his salvation, then ask the Lord to increase your faith so that you might trust in him and his promises more and more. Pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who hears the prayers of your people. We pray, Lord, that by your Spirit, you would draw to each of our minds and our hearts the ways we have sinned and fallen short of you and your glory and have not yet sought repentance for those things. Father, would you drive us to our knees in repentance daily? Would you help us to see our sin for what it is, but also to see your grace and mercy for what it is too? Father, would you renew us daily in these gospel promises that you are near, that through Christ we have promises and blessings that belong by right to us through Christ, and would you remind us that you will one day right every wrong, just as you've promised. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.